Today's scripture reading comes to us from Galatians 2, verse 17 to 21. By faith or by works of the law. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is to Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. The righteousness shall live by faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curse it be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteousness shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentile, so that we might receive the promise, the Spirit, uh, through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you for that reading. Welcome once again, and now let's pray for the Lord to bless us in our time together. Let's ask for God's illumination. Father, we pray now that you would help us to understand your word especially this particular word which possesses so much rich truth that can easily be hard to digest. Lord, we ask that you would give us clarity, that you would give us conviction, and that you would give us compassion more and more as we seek to live out the words that this scripture is empowered by your spirit to activate in our lives. Lord, you know the struggles that we have. You know the sorrows that we carry. And we know, Lord, that you can overcome those things in us here and now just with this word that you give to us. And so, Lord, may your word go forth and fulfill its purposes. And we ask that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Have you ever witnessed someone who started well but ended so badly? You know, someone who seemed to have so much promise of turning out in such a great way, but only to come to find that they could not fulfill those promises. Whether you're talking about that college star athlete acquiring that high-profile professional contract only to burn out within the first season. Or maybe the brilliant student that teachers everywhere easily envision walking the halls of Harvard or Yale, but instead bagging your groceries at the local corner market. Or maybe something far too common and too sad, that young couple, that family and friends easily envision decades upon decades of happily married bliss, you know, till death do us part, only to find that three years in, they're ready to do in each other's own death. 
Everything that I've just described to you is what classical literature would describe as the tragedy, and we see it far too often being lived out amongst those around us. And one particular version of this tragedy is the one that's particularly relevant to us today because according to the Bible, it's the most tragic one of all, and that is the spiritual tragedy, where you have a person who has such a promising and prominent relationship with God and therefore position to make great works and impact for God, only to fade out at the twilight of their life, easily forgotten because they have fallen victim to what is known as the spiritual tragedy. Now, before you seasoned saints in here think that, oh, this is not a concern, this is not a threat to me, need I remind you that recorded for us in the pages of Scripture are characters of men and women who feared the Lord, loved the Lord, were devoted to the Lord, and yet failed to live out their potential because they've fallen victim to the spiritual tragedy that I refer to today. You ever heard of Adam, Noah, David, Solomon, spiritual giants in their generation only to leave their generation as an utter failure? Yes, indeed, what I say to you today is a real concern for anyone who considers themselves to be genuine followers of Jesus, evidenced by the fact that the Apostle Paul felt inspired by the Holy Spirit to write our passage today as we continue our journey through the book of Galatians entitled, The One True Faith. And today, the great apostle is going to show us that one of the ways that we know that our faith is indeed the only true one is because embedded within it are dangers and trials and temptation that has its goal of making sure that every single one of us journeying in this faith end up nothing more as a spiritual tragic case. And so in the hopes of avoiding that for you and for me, three things I'd like to share with you today in our passage in Galatians 3. First, we're going to talk about the source of the spiritual tragedy. Then we're going to talk about the futility of the spiritual tragedy. And then we're going to end it with a deliverance from the spiritual tragedy. The source, the futility, and finally the deliverance from the spiritual tragedy. Let's begin with the first point, the source of the spiritual tragedy. Read again with me verse 1 of our passage where Paul writes as follows, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Anyone ever call you a fool before? Excuse me. Anyone ever call you a fool? And I don't mean in jest and in fun, but in a moment of heated exchange where you guys are ready to throw blows at each other, And in a moment of such anger and violence, they curse you out by saying, you fool. You're like, no. (laughs) Because in your mind and in their minds, there are other more colorful words that you can think of to curse each other out. But in the mind of God, there is no other word that carries more hatred and more violence than the word fool. Consider these words of Jesus recorded for us in Matthew 5, where starting in the 21st verse, we read, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But, Jesus says, I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. In the days of the Bible, There was no word that carried more hatred, more insult than the word fool to the point where Jesus says that if you chose to call someone a fool instead of killing them, it's just as bad if you actually did kill them. Now, 
Obviously, the Apostle Paul doesn't want to kill the Galatians, literally, when he calls them a fool, but he does want to kill a tendency that he sees in them so often, a tendency recorded for us in verse 3, where it reads as this, Are you so foolish, having begun the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now I know, not a very clear translation. So let's find another one that is more clear, the NLT version, where it says this, How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? Ah, now we get his point. Paul is rebuking the Galatians for their foolish attempt in trying to be morally perfect on their own strength, on their own effort. If you were here last week, we did that sermon where Paul instructed all of us that it is not possible to be perfect by obeying God's law on your own strength, by your own efforts. And for those of you who were not here last week, a quick recap by reading Galatians 2, verse 16, where Paul said this, Yet we know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we have obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. Here, as well as in numerous citations of Paul's letters, Paul tells us over and over, no person is capable of ever being able to earn or merit a relationship with the perfect God because none of us in here are perfect. In other words, nobody on God's earth can win or woo over God's affection or affirmation through their morality, through their righteousness, through their character, because all of us are deeply broken. We're deeply flawed. We are all deeply imperfect. And this is something that even, surprisingly, non-Christians get and they accept and they understand, which begs the question, how come these Christians in Galatia and how come so many Christians, maybe some of them in this room, how come we can't get that? How come we can't accept this truth? Well, believe it or not, Paul already gave us the answer by using this derogatory word, fool. So let's circle back to it, to what I ask of you now. What is a fool? Well, unlike the ignorant who does not know any better, the fool does know better and yet still acts contrary to what he knows to his own hurt. Whether you're talking about that chain smoker who had a parent dying at a young age because they smoked or the dentist who refuses to brush his own teeth, whatever example you can think of, the fool is always the same. They don't do what they ought to do or they do what they ought not do to do that is what a fool is but of course knowing what a fool is doesn't exactly answer why a fool is i mean we can understand the behavior of a fool but we don't understand from that behavior is the motivation of a fool to where now i want to ask another question why are fools fools well if you ever read scripture specifically the book of proverbs it tells us many reasons of why people are so foolish evidenced by the many categories of fools that it lists out For example, there is the stupid fool, the person who does very dumb things because they lack common sense. Then there's the morally corrupt fool who is so irresponsible and so immoral that they do things even though it hurts them because it just feels good. Then there is the arrogant fool who is so full of themselves they think they're the center of the world only to be hit very hard that is ready to correct them that they're not. Then there is the naive fool who does such idiotic things where they believe anything and anyone because they have no discernment, they can't read people. And then there's, the, of course, the atheist fool, someone who is so 
arrogantly confident of their knowledge that they would dare deny the obvious, the existence of God and the primacy of his law to live by. Now, the Bible tells us that any Christian worth their salt, that is a genuine growing Christian, will be able to avoid these kinds of foolish behavior and therefore not fall into these categories of folly. And yet, Paul tells us, there is a specific kind of foolishness that Christians are especially susceptible to falling into, which is the folly that the Galatians fell into, which is why he calls them a fool. Which fool is that? It is the insecure fool. Even though all of us in this room, if we've been walking with Jesus, can avoid becoming stupid and naive and atheistic, many of us are primed and ready into becoming the insecure fool. Read again with me verse 2 and verse 5 together where it says this. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? If you were paying attention, you might have noticed that Paul referenced the sense of hearing. He referenced it twice in these two verses. And he contrasts with hearing to the works of the law, which basically means trying to have a relationship with God through your own attempt to be perfect, through your own attempt to be morally pure, okay? And so this begs the question, what's so special, what's so unique about hearing to where it can do what works of the law cannot, namely establish a relationship with God? What is so unique about the sense of hearing? Well, consider these words from theologian Hans Ur von Balthasar. That's his real name. Hans Ur von Balthasar. I practiced for 10 minutes this morning trying to figure out how to pronounce his name. Listen to what he says. Quote, it is not we ourselves who determine on our part what is heard and place it before us as an object in order to turn our attention to when it pleases us. That which is heard comes upon us without our being informed of its coming in advance. It lays hold of us without our being asked. We cannot look out in advance and take up our distance. It is the highest degree symbolic that only our eyes and not our ears have lids. The basic relationship between the one who hears and that which is heard is thus one of defenselessness on one side and of communication on the other. The equality of stance between the two is fundamentally removed even in a dialogue between equals in rank. The one who is at the moment hearing is in a subordinate position of humble receiving, end quote. What's he saying? Very weird loaded words. Well, in a nutshell, he's simply explaining why Paul is talking about hearing and why it can do what our works of the law cannot. Okay? You see, the only way you can have an established relationship with God is when you're in a position of receiving. Not in a position of giving through your morality, but by receiving, by hearing the gospel. Okay, But that's not all. If you look carefully with what he says in verse 5, Paul goes on to say that the continuation of your relationship with God, which is what he means with supplies with the Spirit, is something that you cannot contribute with whatsoever as well. This is why von Balthasar says that we are defenseless, meaning we cannot defend our relationship with God. In other words, you cannot safeguard, you cannot secure, you cannot shield your relationship with God to continue with your morality. And this is something you Christians really need to understand because like the Galatians, so many of you act the fool in your relationship to God. You try to secure your relationship with God by continuing your morality, saying, if only I go to church, if only I read scripture, the only way if I just say no to this sin that I'm so habitually addicted to, then I can ensure that God is going to stick with me. 
You see, many of you have already grasped this idea that, yes, I can do nothing to initiate a relationship with God, but then you make the mistake into thinking, well, I got to make sure he stays because God, he's like, 1980s alert, he's like Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately, right? The assumption is if I don't maintain, if I don't keep offering, if I don't keep making him happy, he's going to bounce, he's going to leave me, right? All the young people like, find out who Janet Jackson is later, right? Don't misunderstand me. Reading scripture, attending church, saying no to sin, these are important things. But the point is, is that you should not be driven to do them because of your insecurity into thinking that if I don't, that God is going to leave, that he's going to abandon, that he's going to forsake. And he says, you know what? You don't really do anything for me right now. Even though I initiated, I established this relationship with you. I'm not getting any uh, paid back. I'm not getting any quid pro quo. So we're done. That's not how the Christian life works. And just in case you're not sure whether this is you, whether you're the insecure fool, right? Try this test, your prayer life. If you're one of those Christians who never pray to God vulnerably, that is, you're never honest with sharing with God the things that you really need, things that you really wish, things that are very precious to you because you don't want to risk him saying no, and you're worried about how that's going to affect your relationship with him, right? You're the insecure fool. You've become the Galatian Christian. You've stumbled onto the source of spiritual tragedy, right? Because what are you doing? You're trying to protect your relationship with God from God by your efforts. Because you're having this mindset that even if God is the one who started this relationship, it's up to me to hold on to him. It's up to me to make sure he stays. It's by my effort, whether it's by my morality or whether it's not risking vulnerable prayers, I must maintain this relationship. He started, I must maintain, I must make sure I don't risk it, I don't do anything wrong. It's all on me. If that is you, I'm sorry to say, you are the fool. You're the insecure fool because you stumbled onto the source of the insecure Galatian spirit. And what's so sad about this is that it doesn't even work. Why? Let me explain by going to my next point, the futility of the spiritual tragedy. Read again with me, verse 10. Paul writes, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Here Paul gets straight to the point when it comes to our foolish attempt to protect our relationship with God from God through either our morality or through our reluctant prayers or through any effort of our own. What happens? We get cursed. We get driven away. We get cast out from his presence. Why? Well, he indirectly tells us with the quote he cites here. He says, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. For those of you Bible scholars, you'll recognize that he's citing Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. But here's what's so interesting. If you go back to the original source of Deuteronomy 27, 26, he doesn't cite it perfectly. He adds a word that's not found in the original Hebrew. It's the word all where it says, he who does not abide by all things written in the book of law. That word all is not there in Moses' original penmanship. Why? Well, some scholars think that what he's trying to get at is simply this. 
the reason why we cannot perfectly obey God's law is because we don't know all of God's law. And it kind of makes sense. You see the size of the Old Testament? That thing is thick, filled with stipulations and commands and, and, and prescriptions that we are to follow. And you think, okay, it makes sense. Maybe God's law is so massive that we're not fully aware of all the laws and hence we violate it because we're simply ignorant. But that is not what Paul says. Listen again to what he does not say. He does not say that all who do not know God's law, but he says all who do not abide by all of God's law. So here's the question. What is the all that he's referring to? Consider these words from theologian Gary Williams. He writes, quote, We are sometimes mysterious to one another. Even in close marriage, there are still surprises. Sometimes we are even mysterious to ourselves. We awake in a state of mind we can't explain. We react in a way that frustrates us, and we do not even know ourselves well enough to know what we are doing wrong. In one sense, we know our sin all too well in that it weighs upon us and we cannot evade it. But in another sense, we do not know our sins in that we have not grasped the sinfulness of much of what we do. This is not because we do not know the law of God perfectly. It is also because we do not have a clear sight of our own motives, end quote. What is he saying? He's saying the reason why you and I cannot obey God's law perfectly isn't because of ignorance of the law. It's rather because ignorance of ourselves. We don't know all of us you see and because we can't know ourselves perfectly we cannot know where and when we already broke god's law this is the futility of spiritual tragedy hear me carefully none of us can protect our relationship with god from god through our morality because of the fact that many of us are still living in sin but we just don't even know it we don't even realize that we've lived in or are still living in sin i mean haven't you experienced this a couple years go down the line and you think back to some personal biography of your life and you're like whoa i was wrong i was stupid multiply that by an infinity and that's god's perspective of you many of us assume that we have ourselves figured out when we don't evidenced by the fact that we are still guilty of sins that we're not even cognizant of right here right now The Bible teaches us over and over that sin is so deeply embedded in our hearts that we're not even aware when we're in it and when we're still in it. Consider a sampling of scriptures found in the Old Testament. Leviticus 5.17 says, Suppose you sin by violating one of the Lord's commands. Even if you are unaware of what you have done, you are guilty and will be punished for your sin. Psalm 19, verse 12. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from my hidden faults. Psalm 139, verse 23-24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thought. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of everlasting life. Over and over, we see in Scripture the principles of hidden sins deep within that we're continually using against God that we're consciously unaware of right here, right now. And you know what that means? It means any attempt to try and protect your relationship with God from God, with your morality, with your efforts, is just as futile as a surgeon attempting life-saving surgery with unwashed hands. There are invisible things that you possess that are working against your very efforts. But here's what's so weird. So many Christians, like the ones in Galatia, we still attempt to do what is futile. 
We still attempt to do what is nonsensical. And the question is, why do we do this? Verse 4. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? What's Paul talking about here? Specifically, what suffering is he referring to? He's talking about the suffering that happens as a result of insecure relationships. Relationships that are unsafe, that are unfaithful and unreliable. Unsafe, unreliable, and unfaithful. I've been a pastor for quite some time now, and I would say 99.9999% of the sufferings that people have endured and shared with me could be traced back to some significant, important relationship that was traumatized by unfaithfulness, unreliableness, and being unsafe. Whether you're talking about the relationship between a parent and a child, friend to friend, sibling to sibling, teacher to student, pastor to church member, church member to church member, what have you. A majority of all the pain and misery that we see happening in this world is because significant relationships have too often been unreliable, unsafe, and unfaithful. And the terrible results that happens because of that trauma is that they take that insecurity and they bring it into their relationship with God that results in them being so skeptical of God's affection, right? So uneasy about the promises of God's love for them recorded in Scripture to the point where they're too terrified to truly believe and accept that God cares for them the way He promises us in Christ. And so they play the fool. They turn into a bunch of Galatian Christians. And the point I think that Paul is making with this in mind And the question that he asks is basically this. Galatians, Christians, did you suffer all those terrible relationships only to throw away the one relationship that is not like that? Right? Have you suffered so much and endured so much to get to the point of becoming a Christian where you now finally have a relationship that is truly reliable, that is truly safe, that is truly faithful, and now you're just going to throw it away? Is that what you're telling me? You're going to go all Galatian on God? You're going to just say that all that suffering and all that search in the midst of that suffering, you're just going to give up on and say, forget it, and forsake the only one relationship that can actually do what you wish those relationships did for you but could not? Is that what you're saying? Now, I got to be careful here because I don't want to be insensitive because I know for many of us, if not all, struggle with that insecurity. If I were honest with you, I still struggle with that insecurity. Does God really love me? Is God really going to stay? Or is it up to me to make sure he never leaves? Is it up to me to make sure he doesn't forsake even though he has the right to because I can't keep up, I can't maintain, I can't be perfect? I think we're going to find the answer to that question that Paul is going to reveal to us in just a moment. But let me segue it by going into my final point to deliver us from the spiritual tragedy. One of the things that you'll notice, especially for those of you who were in my Ask the Bible class, is how often Paul repeats certain words, words like law, Abraham, Christ. And as I listened to a lot of sermons, well, I didn't listen to a lot of sermons. I listened to like one sermon, I think. 
this particular preacher, he acknowledged these words that Paul repeated. But there's one word that was repeated that this preacher I was listening to completely either ignored or made a passing reference to. It's a word that he repeats four times in verse 2, 3, 4, and verse 14. It's the word Holy Spirit. And if I was critiquing this man's sermon, I would have given him an F because it was such an important word, the Holy Spirit. Why? Consider these words from New Testament scholar Herman Ritterboss, where he writes, quote, Paul reminds them, the Galatians, of the time of their conversion and of their receiving of the gift of the Spirit. The apostle refers his reader to this because the receiving of the gift of the Spirit is surely the most unmistakable evidence of God's favor. Did you get that? The Holy Spirit is the unmistakable evidence. It's the undeniable truth that God loves us with a safe, reliable, faithful love. Again, the gift of the Spirit is God's unmistakable proof to us, His evidence given to us, that His love for us is safe, reliable, and faithful. Do you guys know the last thing Jesus did before He ascended into heaven? After He died on the cross, what was the final thing that He did before He rose again? into the heavenly realms with the angels. Most people will say, duh, he rose again from the dead, right? Doesn't that say that in the Apostles' Creed? You know, he died, he rose again from the dead, and then what? He ascended into heaven? That's actually not true. That was one of the last things that he did, but it wasn't the last thing that he did. You know what the last thing he did? He gave the Holy Spirit. He breathed. Pastor Charles, no, because he's puckering his lips at me. (laughs) He breathed the Holy Spirit. He gave the gift of the Spirit of God before he ascended into heaven. Paul knew that. This is why he says what he does in verse 13 and 14. Read again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that what we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Listen. Jesus didn't just die on the cross to forgive you of your sins, although he did. Jesus didn't just die to give you eternal life, though he did. Jesus also died so that you could receive the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. Anyone ever make a promise to you before? Of course they have, all the time. And what's always assumed when they make that promise? You want what they're promising, right? I would never in my in my, all my years of being a father, ever promised my kids that they can have as much vegetables as they want every single day because they don't want that promise. But when I make a promise, hey, if you do well in school, on Friday I'll give you three pieces of candy after school. Oh, they love that promise. They love that promise a lot. Hear this. When Paul refers to the Spirit as a promised Spirit, what do you think he's telling we Christians should feel about the Spirit of God? He's saying we should feel about the Spirit the way my children feel about candy. We should crave the Spirit. We should see the Spirit as being so, so sweet because He is. Why? Because the Spirit is God's promise that His relationship with you will never turn out the way other relationships have turned out as being unreliable, unfaithful, or unsafe. Test, test. No, it's because the battery is about to die and it's turned red. Okay, I'll take this. I wonder if 
Janet Jackson ever struggled with this or Brittany? Who? <laughs> anyway, um, okay, I lost my train of thought. The Spirit is God's promise that his relationship with you will never turn out the way other significant relationships turned out. Unreliable, unsafe, unfaithful. How do I know this? Because of two passages that are so important for you to understand. First is 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? And then secondly, Romans 8, 26 to 27, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how we should pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to God's will. Putting these two passages of scriptures together, what does this tell us about the role of the Spirit? It tells us that when we become Christians, the Spirit of God lives in us, and he has access to the deepest hidden parts of our hearts that we don't even know exist, such as the sins that we are currently committing against God. That's why he does what he does in verse 27. He makes what? Intercessions. He intercedes. You know what the word intercede means? Literally, defense attorney. The Spirit of God is defending us. You know Putting this together, this is mind-blowing. you got to understand what this means because if you do, you'll be blown away. What is this telling us? It's telling us that even though you and I <clears throat> cannot protect our relationship with God from God through your morality, the Holy Spirit can protect your relationship with God from you through his intercession. Again, even though you cannot protect your relationship with God from God through your morality, the Holy Spirit can protect your relationship with God from you through his intercession power, through his interceding ministry, right? He intercedes. He is defending us. Defending us from who? From you, from your insecurity. This is why he says in verse 26 of Romans 8, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. That word in the Greek literally means in our insecurity, If this doesn't make sense, maybe this can help you. Let's say a little child is afraid of the dark, and he cannot sleep in his room because he's convinced that there are monsters in his room and that they're going to come out the moment the lights go off. And so a father lovingly says, there are no monsters, and to convince you, here's a light, a little night light. Right? Now, by giving the light to his child, he is not agreeing that there are real monsters in the room but to show him that there are no monsters, evidenced by the fact that the light will reveal what is not in the room, namely monsters. That's the Holy Spirit. God gives us the Holy Spirit so that whenever we're tempted to think that God is a monster, the Holy Spirit is that inner light that reveals there's no such thing as a monster God. There's only Father God. That's what the Spirit does for us. This is why Jesus says these words in Luke 11. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Why is the Holy Spirit so precious? 
Now, I might ruffle feathers and I might offend. I don't mean to. The Spirit of God is not God's gift to us because we can pray in tongues. It's not so that we can speak revelation or give prophecy. It's not so that through the Spirit we can have the power to heal. The reason why the gift of the Spirit is so precious is because he convinces us that we want to be convinced of, that God truly loves you, that God is for you, and that there is no such thing as a monster God. There is only Father God. That is what Jesus is making us being aware of in this passage in Luke 11. And if you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, I have to ask, are you really grateful for the Spirit of God? Or are you needing to remind yourself of the glorious blessing of the gospel that not only includes the forgiveness of sins, not only includes eternal life, but includes assurance that you can ask God to give you more of through prayer and say, God, you've given me your spirit. Make him do his work. Assure me that you truly are safe. Otherwise, I'm a tragedy. Will you save me? For myself. If you're here today investigating Christianity and you're so tired of the sufferings that come from relationships that have been unfaithful, unreliable, and unsafe, can I encourage you to consider the only relationship that can give you what you so wished every other relationship could have been but will never be, but only God can be. Truly safe, truly faithful, truly reliable. At this time, I want to end with a couple of next steps, beginning with those of you who are here today as our guests. If you're here and you're ready to receive Christ, take this time now and lift up your voices to the Lord and ask him to be in your life. Ask for his spirit to dwell in you. Confess your sins and cling to Jesus as your Savior and come talk to me afterwards. I would love to help you on this wonderful journey you're about to begin. To the rest of you, Christian, let me ask you, have you gone Galatian on God lately? Have you gone Galatian on him to where you are on the cusp of thinking that the God that you are in relationship with is demanding on you to make sure that you keep it together? One way you can figure this out is how are you praying? Are you really praying vulnerably? Are you giving him the fine china, right, of your life? Were you actually praying for something that you know that could really challenge your relationship with him if you said no to? Lord, I really want a husband. I really want a baby. I really want to pursue this. Are you willing to take that risk? Number three, memorize, meditate. Romans 8, verse 15 to 16 this week. Let me read it to you. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. One of my favorite verses that I constantly cling to, and I want you to cling to it as well. Okay. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you the assurance of your Father's love for you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that in the midst of all the difficulties that we face and all the things that we seek to do for your name, Father, we ask that you would protect us against an insidious folly that we can easily fall into, and that is the insecure folly of the Galatian spirit. Father, you know many of us probably struggle with this constantly. Many of us are in it now. 
Father, free us, for you promised that you are the source of wisdom. You are the source of life. And I ask, Lord, that my brothers and sisters here in this room who may be feeling the Galatian oppression would be set free in Jesus' name because of the Spirit of God that dwells within. Father, I also pray for those here considering to follow you. Father, would you remind them of the joy that is theirs if they have this relationship with you, that they can finally have what they could not have with mom and dad, they could not have with husband or wife, that they could not have with child, they could not have with friend or even with another church member. Father, I pray that they would find this joy, this safe, reliable, faithful love in you. Would you bring them to your presence now? For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.